Hi, I'm Mariana Vieira. And I'm Lara Holman, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hey, Mariana, how are you today? I'm good, Lara. Have you seen the weather? I don't think I could complain, even if I had a day full of meetings. What about you? Yes, the sun is shining through my window, so I am keen to get out soon and soak in some vitamin D. Sounds just like my plans, which involve walking the dog and absorbing all these rays of sunshine that are coming through my window. But before we can do that, I think we should let our listeners know what we have in store for them in this episode. So, Lara, who did you talk to? Yes, I got very lucky this week. Uh, so I got to talk about a topic that's very close to my heart. And I talked to Professor Sophie Harmon, who is a professor of international politics in the School of Politics and International Relations at Queen Mary, University of London, and just an overall expert in global health and gender She recently published a paper titled Threat, Not Solution, Gender, Global Health, Security and COVID-19 in Chatham House's International Affairs Journal. So as the title suggests, we chatted about everything gender and how gender has been neglected in past health crises and why, despite its increased visibility during the COVID-19 pandemic, there is still a long way to go for gender equality and global health as long as gender is recognized as a solution rather than the threat, as the title suggests. That sounds fascinating. Did you touch upon any interesting case studies during your interview? Yes, Sophie has plenty of experience. So in the article, as well as in the interview, she was able to drop on examples from the previous Ebola outbreaks, as well as the Zika outbreak in 2015 and 2016, and HIV-8. So it's really interesting to get a well-rounded view of the role of gender in health crises. How about you, Mariana? Who did you talk to? So it seems like we both hit the bingo of topics because for this interview, the topic was on U.S. foreign policy, which was right up my alley. And I hope it's not too biased of me to say that I had an excellent interview with Dr. Daniel Strife. Dr. Strife is a regular contributor for Chatham House's The World Today magazine, and his latest column focuses on Biden's immigration policy. Besides that, Daniel is a full-time freelance writer slash policy analyst. He specializes uh, in the domestic politics of U.S. foreign policy. And hence, we had to have him on the podcast to discuss the domestic tensions and changes that inform American environmental and climate change policies. That sounds like a lot of ground to cover. What did you focus on? So we managed to talk about the role of Congress. We talked about when and how the environment became a popular and then a partisan topic in the U.S. And we also covered a bit on how domestic actors have become global climate action leaders in the past four years. That sounds really interesting. Shall we give it a listen? Let's do it. I'm joined today by Professor Sophie Harmon, who is a professor of international politics in the School of Politics and International Relations at Queen Mary University of London and a BAFTA-nominated film producer. She's an expert in global health governance and gender politics. During the COVID-19 pandemic, she's been really busy. She's been a founding member of the Gender and COVID-19 Working Group, an advisor to the CIHR Gender and COVID-19 Project, has done a video series on global health security, been briefing the UK government as well as the UN, and just sharing global health teaching materials. So there's loads we could be chatting about, but we'll focus on one of Sophie's most recent publication in Chatham House's journal, International Affairs. 
Hi, Sophie. Thanks for joining me. Hi, pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So your paper is titled Threat Not Solution, Gender, Global Health Security and COVID-19. Can you just give me a quick recap of what's happening in the paper? So the paper is really about whether we take gender seriously during pandemics and public health emergencies. And my conclusion is we don't, but we kind of know that. So anyone who was working on any aspect of gender knows that. But to really unpick why not. And I think over the years, we've looked at HIV and AIDS and Ebola and Zika and the same patterns of how gender is ignored has happened with COVID-19. So instead of just kind of rehashing all these reasons why it's ignored, I wanted to take a step back and think about what is going on here. And then it just kind of dawned on me is that It's not that actors in global health don't recognise gender or don't see it as a problem, but they just see it as a solution to pandemics. And what I mean about that is that they think that gender norms around women's work in particular as carers will just fill this gap of behaviour change communication in the home. When the schools close, women will just deploy resources to looking after their children at their own cost to their well-being and economic livelihood as well. And then also this kind of growing rhetoric that women are somehow better leaders in responding to pandemics because they're caring and all that kind of stuff that completely disregards decades of feminist research that's tried to unpick some of these gender norms. And so it was really like, oh my gosh, this is what's happening. It's not an issue that institutions don't see gender or they don't recognise it. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of problems there still, but it's actually that they see gender norms and women as the solution to these crises. And if you actually address these problems, that would take a lot of resource, time and understanding of it. So I thought, yeah, let's just call it what it is. Thanks so much for giving the recap. We'll dive deeper into the different aspects. And Before that, you talk about solution, you talk about threat. That's quite common in global health security. But for those listeners that haven't read loads about global health security, can you do a quick recap on what are the current structures? What are the trends, patterns, criticisms of global health security? No problem. So global health security, I imagine only a few of your listeners were probably really familiar with up until last year. And now everyone has some sense of it. I think mainly from that big global health security idiom that no one's safe until everyone's safe. You know, diseases cross borders, they don't respect who you are or your wealth, that kind of thing. But to take a step back from that, so global health security is definitely a phrase that has come up after the early 2000s. So even though we've always known that health is a threat to trade and state security from way back from previous epidemics like Spanish flu, impact on militaries, from closing down certain borders, the introduction of quarantine, in contemporary international relations, global health security kind of came about when people started talking about new security threats towards the late 1990s, early 2000s. And that was really kind of encapsulated by the UN Security Council resolution on HIV and AIDS as a threat to international peace and security. And that was the real kind of like, oh my gosh, the UN Security Council is talking about health. This is a real big issue. Now, that was a kind of cunning device around the AIDS community to really get the international community to do something about HIV and AIDS. And since then, it's become the kind of model that if you want a health issue to get attention, you kind of shape it as a security threat. 
So this goes off into two quick tangents. Firstly, this whole kind of securitization debate, how you frame a health issue as a security issue. And the second is this kind of wider question about people recognizing that health is a very serious concern for international relations and people should be preparing for the next pandemic. That's led to lots of investment, particularly in infectious diseases around, say, Ebola or flus or pandemic flu, as we all very well know now with COVID-19. But the politics of it is it tends to be around those issues that are protecting the West from the rest, which is, again, quite a blunt phrase. So it's intended to focus on protecting the West from those other countries. So Asia, Africa, where these things happen. And of course, COVID-19 turned that completely on its head and said, well, where is the threat? The threat's changed. The threat is not necessarily these countries. The threat is actually Europe and the US, for example. But it's still about the question that that raises is how global health security privileges certain issues. So issues only become of concern if they are a threat to the global north, to high income countries. The problem that people in global health have around global health security is how issues that may kill more people, so malaria, access to water and sanitation, universal health coverage, don't get the same attention as these big global health security issues. So it creates kind of hierarchies in which global health issues matter. So yeah, that's your quick two-minute introduction to global health security. That was great. I wish I had that in my first global health security module that I'm playing at uni. And if listeners want to hear more a bit about the power asymmetries that exist, we did record a podcast with Ngozi Rondu and Michelle Khan on decolonizing global health. So do give that a listen too. Most people have picked up on, you know, the gendered impacts of COVID-19 thanks to the visibility that it has achieved in mainstream media that you also describe in your article and that we'll pick up on later. But first, I wanted to hear about gender and previous health emergencies that you've already touched upon. So you draw upon examples and research from Ebola, from Zika, from HIV AIDS. So can you elaborate on that? And what are the impacts? How have they been neglected? How does gender show? So we've always known that pandemics or health emergencies have been gendered. And so when we say what gendered, what does that mean? That means how kind of gender norms impact on how people are vulnerable to infection, how they are involved in the response, and how gender norms kind of exacerbate inequalities in the short and the long term. In global health, that tends to refer to the predominance of women as healthcare workers in the world. So women make up the majority of healthcare workers. That labour is also devalued, but it also makes them vulnerable during a health emergency. And it also relies on non-health issues around care in the home. So coming back to these kind of old school feminist ideas of distinctions between public and private, about what happens in this private space that underpins responses. More generally, HIV AIDS has really set the train for this. But the everyday encounters that women have around AIDS is kind of some of the questions that haven't really been taken forward at the institutional level within, say, WHO or when the UN Security Council talks about AIDS as a threat. You know, who is the threat? Is it women living with HIV predominantly in sub-Saharan Africa, for example? So that's for something like a pandemic like AIDS. What's slightly different with Ebola and Zika is that these are issues that are called a public health emergency of international concern. So listeners who might not be familiar with that, this is when the World Health Organization kind of raises the red flag under the international health regulations to say, look out world, this is serious, we now need to act. 
I mean, obviously, states would be acting beforehand in preparedness, but this is the big kind of red flag moment. With those emergencies, what you started to see was a kind of problem around data being captured of who was being affected. So how men and women might have been affected and infected differently. Those listeners who are like, yeah, but what about non-binary people? What about people who don't use male or female? I mean, that is way off. No one even captures that data. I mean, that, that's hugely like a problem. But let's take about if you can't even capture data that disaggregates male and female. I mean, just imagine. Right. Anyway. So firstly, let's get the data to see who this is impacting on, because then we can start to think about what type of issues are actually driving it. So if more men are dying of COVID-19, why is that? What social factors are leading to their infections and their deaths? I think this is really important. We saw that with Ebola. see that now with COVID-19. It's also who's working on the response. So does that make them more vulnerable and how do we protect them? Then you have the other level that we know that certain measures in the response are going to affect men and women differently. So we know that domestic abuse goes up during periods of quarantine and lockdown. That was really evident uh, with the Ebola outbreak. And, you know, some of us at the start of the COVID-19 outbreak were saying we have got to pay attention to this. And I think everyone was quite caught off guard by that. Even those charities who actually work on domestic abuse, I think once the penny dropped, the severity of it, everyone, I think, was deeply and rightfully so concerned about that and then issues around schooling you know who's doing picking up the slack around this so we've seen this from AIDS to Ebola and to Zika I think the difference with Zika and I'm going to also shout out my friend Claire Wenham's forthcoming book on this because she's got a book on I think it's feminist global health security that looks at Zika Zika here is an issue that is really affecting women right so it's women and their unborn babies and their babies right this is the concern yet still there was these questions around I think Claire will tell you about this but the kind of advice was you know just stay home and don't get pregnant I mean what does that tell you so we've seen this all before so this is all anything that happens around gender and COVID-19 there are new interesting insights I mean I'm not devaluing the huge amount of work that's going into this But these are similar patterns that we have seen before. The difference, I think, with COVID-19 is very much the attention that you now have towards these questions of gender. Thanks so much. And I think it was also in relation or summarising the points on Zika and Ebola, where I picked up a quote that you've used in your paper. I'm going to just read it out loud and then ask you what it means and, and how that works into the current pandemic as well. So the quote reads... What is pertinent in health emergencies is how the conspicuousness of women becomes a means of making gender invisible. Yeah, so this is actually something I'm now working up into my new book that's actually expanding on this concept. So what's really interesting to me is that when people try and talk about gender, they talk about women. And so they'll say there are this amount of women on the panel. Or, well, we care about women because women are healthcare workers. And that ameliorates any attention towards the gender politics or issues that drive some of these concerns. So what's very interesting in global health in particular is that global health is a sector saturated with women. Women are conspicuous everywhere, right? So they are conspicuous as healthcare workers. They're conspicuous if you just look at any image on vaccine drives, look who's administering the vaccine, always a woman, right? Often a woman of colour, always a woman. It's just there. The visual politics are always gendered as well. Anyway, sorry, again, I digress. So coming back. So women are kind of conspicuous in the sector, but the gender politics around them are completely invisible. 
And that's a real issue within global health. You are allowing gender to become invisibilized by just always saying, well, here are the women. We don't have a gender problem. And I originally started to think about this concept when I looked at Ebola. And that was, again, saying, look, women are everywhere, but they're totally invisible from strategies. Gender is totally invisible from policies. So everyone talks about it, but nothing actually happens. So there's no formal recognition. And you can start to see that with COVID-19. It's sort of like, yeah, I really care about women. You know, we have women on this panel. Women are healthcare workers. Of course, we care about them. But then if you try and look for gender anywhere in any of the strategies, it's just completely invisible. So this is this kind of this paradox that women are completely conspicuous and gender is invisible. And increasingly what I'm looking at in my book that looks beyond health emergencies It's how visibility and invisibility work together. So how some women are made more visible to the exclusion of others and how gender keeps getting pushed down because of this focus on women. That is a perfect segue into, well, the current pandemic or, well, the current COVID-19 pandemic, because you touch up on that issue there. So there was a change in attention to gender. We had UN Director General Antonio Guterres highlighting the impact the pandemic has on women and children. Dr. Tedros, the Director General of the World Health Organization, called for a gender-sensitive response, I believe, in April 2020. So this is high-level political attention we haven't really previously seen in health emergencies. So what happened? Where did this visibility come from, in addition to, of course, the ample research that we've seen before? Yeah, so I explore this more in the paper, and it's really a combination of factors. I mean, firstly, I think you have all the evidence from previous health emergencies. Then you actually have a coming together of an epistemic community of people really interested in these kind of issues now that I don't think, I mean, they existed before, but it wasn't so prominent. So I think it's that kind of post-Me Too reckoning within global health around gender issues. And I think you could see this over the last two years happening anyway, with the Lancet special issue, looking at women and gender in science and global health, and more people doing research in this area, really. So I think you saw this moment where you had researchers and the key institutions and civil society actually really coming together and saying, actually, you know, not this time. And the work of people like Claire Wenham and Julia Smith and Rosemary Morgan, who I've been working with, and lots of other people have just gone for it and made those networks and those connections, you know, founding the Gender and COVID-19 Working Group, which is just huge now. I mean, the amount of research is boggling. It's so exciting. I mean, if you can say something's exciting when it's so depressing, but it's incredible. So you have all this research and therefore these institutions have to respond because also those people with networks that are now calling this stuff out. I think when you have powerful actors like The Lancet, Nature, BMJ publishing stuff on gender, that gets the attention. So that's a really big issue. However, and this is the big caveat, so all that happens, which is great, two factors. Firstly, do I think this would be happening if COVID-19 only impacted on women in low-income countries? No, I do not. I think there's a huge impact because it's starting to happen to rich women in richer countries. And women are starting to say, oh, my God, this is terrible. I don't like this and have voice. And that voice gets listened to. Second point is, does that voice get listened to? No. So you have people like Tedros talking a good game. What's he done? Nothing. And so I think there is a tension there of how much 
those of us who are active on gender and global health, how much we push within these institutions and expect them to change. Because again, they see gender as the solution. They don't see it as a threat to women's well-being. And if they do, it's always secondary. It's always, well, it's a health emergency. We need to do contact tracing. We need to do this. Gender doesn't matter without actually seeing that gender is vital to all those other aspects of the response. Yes, confirming what you said. I had a look at the Global Health 5050 website yesterday and their health policy hub. And almost all of the policy areas, for example, vaccines, public health messaging, surveillance, 90% of the policies are gender blind, which means that they do not take gender into account. Most of the data collected is still not sex disaggregated. I think it's very interesting that we're talking the talk, but we're not walking the walk. Yeah, absolutely. And Global Health 5050 do brilliant work. I mean, their work is fantastic. So, you know, shout out to Sarah Hawkes and her team at UCL. They're great. And yeah, exactly. I mean, this is the thing is, is you have people say, yes, we care, or they'll do the latest soundbite. You know, we care about female health workers. We care about the homeschoolers. And then they're busy developing vaccine rollouts and they completely ignore the gendered impacts on vaccine rollouts. It's just so not integrated in any of those strategies and policies. It's reactionary at best, if it exists at all. Picking up on the threat. So how is gender or how are gender determinants a threat to making the pandemic worse or people's life worse, maybe not necessarily the pandemic? Well, there's both really. So I think it's gender norms around behavior. So health seeking behavior gender norms around also gender roles in society, both types of employment and then informal employment within the home. So that's going to change how you become vulnerable to, say, infection of COVID-19. Also, kind of lifestyle behaviours that may cause mortality from COVID-19. Then you have the kind of the threat to general well-being and economic livelihood and security. So COVID-19 is a threat to women's health and well-being as they diminish their own health to serve other people in response to the pandemic, whether that's children, dependents, a wider role as carers. Of course, men have taken on more. Before anyone says, what about men? Men have taken on more, of course, but not as much as women. That's what all the surveys are coming up with around the world. So there's that aspect. Their mental well-being, I think, is going to be huge. And then there's their economic security, as women, as we know, are becoming more vulnerable to, say, not working in paid employment, having to take time off to fulfil these kind of care roles and the long-term implications of that. And then, of course, the security to their well-being in the home under certain lockdown or quarantine measures. So, for example, when lockdown happened in the UK, I was really concerned because I didn't want to be someone who's a lockdown denier you know lockdowns are extreme issues and when they're necessary they are absolutely necessary and I would support them but as a feminist I found it really hard because I thought if you're going to lock people down and you don't have measures in place to protect women or help women this is awful this is going to have a really detrimental impact on women's economic and personal security and safety And that was a really difficult one to kind of square, because if you say that out loud, i.e. on Twitter, then everyone's going to be like, oh, you're one of those you know, anti-lockdown crazies. And I'm like, no, it's how we think about the long term consequences for women. So what you've been talking about is how we see, you know, women can drive the response. They're crucial to the response. They're the solution we will not have a sustainable gender sensitive response if we're not actually recognizing it as the threat that it is that you've explained and the harm that it does 
to people's life, even outside of a pandemic. So gender determinants always play a role. So if we learn from that, like what's next? How are we creating those recovery plans that might take this into consideration? How are we creating lessons learned documents that are integrating gender into their analysis? Like what needs to be done by researchers like you and me, by civil society organizations, by UN agencies? So first, gender needs to appear in the lessons learned reports because it hasn't ever done before in all the reports we had on Ebola. Let's just get gender there. Secondly, gender does not need to appear in the same sentence as women, gender, the elderly and children. They are all completely different issues of importance, but conflating women and children just, well, that tells you everything you need to know about gender and global health, really. So separate those out. So that's the real basics. Just get it in there. Thirdly, we need to consider the role of gender at every level of the response. So preparedness, response and recovery. Across those three, I think we need to draw on all the research that's happening. So saying, okay, which women are vulnerable? What type of things do we need to do? Get the basics right. So those kind of issues around protection of women uh, during lockdowns and quarantines and the threat of domestic abuse. But also thinking about economic strategies that help support carers. And I mean carers in the broadest sense. So not just carers of the sick, but also those people who are doing increased role care work in the home, homeschooling, that type of thing. And penalising employers that might also issue penalties against women who have had to take breaks for paid work because of this. And I think that's really going to involve a multi-sectoral approach of just not health institutions, but also economic institutions as well. And far too often what happens with gender is the health folks say, oh, no, 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 well, that's not health. So uh, we're, we're not touching that. Yeah, that just replicates the problem. It's like, well, that's not strictly health, so we're not going to touch it. So it's looking at these kind of issues completely in the round, I think. And it's about identifying also the clear health aspects. So the protection of healthcare workers, who does the vaccines, who accesses the vaccines. And it's more than just a sentence. I think if you just bung it in as a sentence or a paragraph in the lessons learned, it's a huge disservice. And it's a disservice to all the rich research. And I think that's the really big thing in my paper is there is the evidence, there is the research. So we can't dismiss it anymore. And that used to be what happened. Everyone's just say, well, there's no data, there's no evidence. So well, what do you want? How much do you want? You'll just dismiss it and you'll say, it's not robust enough. Your sample isn't big enough. You know, we've got to get beyond these excuses. Thanks so much. I'd like to pick up because some of the, you know, response mechanisms you've presented are, you know, penalizing employers, but that in and of itself requires maybe a welfare state or actually a formal labor market. How how do you think could gender sensitive response plans look like or preparedness plans in the future look like in countries where informal labor settings are still dominant? Of course, and that's the majority of the world, so informal labour. I mean, that's the million-dollar question, right? So actually, this is an opportunity to start thinking about how you recognise that and how you restructure economies that value care and based on care. And this is, you know, in the UK, the Women's Budget Group has been doing really important work on this for years. Political economists and care have been working on this. But it's really interesting because everyone agrees that care matters in society, whether it's a care crisis for the elderly or care for the young, And yet everyone thinks it's a problem. 
Whereas actually this could be something that really kind of generates wider income for societies. So I think valuing care. Then your question on how you do this with the informal sector, I think it depends what type of informal economy you're talking about, because there is informal flexibilization. I think better rights for workers, unionization of workers. You know, even if you're a foreign domestic worker working as an in-home cleaner or nanny in a house, you can still unionize and you can still kind of recognize your rights, which have been developed over the years. So informal workers still have rights. And so it's recognizing those rights and having the legal infrastructure for them to be able to claim those rights. So again, it comes back to how health intersects with so many different issues. And sometimes I think people just think, going back to the beginning, that it's so overwhelming that's an excuse to do nothing. So the global health institutions were like, hang on, what's this got to do with us? Let's just talk about contact tracing and how that went wrong, not this. And we need to get beyond that. It's not that complex. And I think it intimidates people, but it shouldn't. On a potentially happier note, a final question, are you hopeful? Because we see now that you know, the way that global health security works at the moment, gender equality cannot be a thing. But in the future, do you think it can? I'm really hopeful when I see the passion and dedication of people working in the field and how far it's come with groups like Global Health 5050, but also just people doing PhDs on this stuff. People are recognising we've come a bit further than we were. And I'm always the Gramscian, you know, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. So I have to, you have to be positive and hope for change. I think the worst thing that can happen is if we go back to the old ways of global health, that this only matters when it happens to rich countries. If you talk to any woman living with HIV, for example, in rural Tanzania where I've worked, they'll be like, this is not new. None of this is new. What about us? You know, this is just everyday life. And I think we just really have to not allow this, not allow COVID-19 to skew everything even more towards emergencies and actually get global health right. This is an opportunity for us to do it. Unfortunately, lots of the winds suggest that's not happening and that everyone's just going to make the mistakes of global health of the past. So in global health governance, it's quite innovative in that it just creates new institutions all the time that just replicate what previous institutions done with the same mistakes and errors. And I think that's going to happen with COVID-19. You can see it with, you know, this new pandemic treaty, with rhetoric around, do we need a new institution for health emergencies? These structures already exist. So Yeah. Okay. I'm going to finish on an optimistic note. There's lots of people that are just going to hold these institutions to account. We're vocal now and we're not going to shut up. That's a great way to end. Optimism with a tense of realistic notion. Thanks so much, Sophie, for joining me today. And yeah, keep on the good work and keep on keeping institutions accountable. Thanks so much. So now I'm joined by Dr. Daniel Streif, and you might recall uh, from your teaching days that a fairly standard way of starting any discussion on the links between domestic and foreign policy is to look at the importance of Congress, which is a domestic body in the making of U.S. foreign policy. Could you briefly outline the role of Congress in U.S. foreign affairs and what it means when we hear that the Congress holds the purse strings? Discuss the role of Congress in foreign policy. It's been sort of described most famously in a book about half a century ago as 
an invitation to struggle. That's an invitation to struggle for primacy in foreign affairs between the presidency and Congress. And what's meant by that is that there's a lot of blurred lines between which branch of the government is responsible for which roles. The Constitution does delineate a number of areas that Congress has responsibility in, but in effect, this boils down to really three essential things. One you just touched on, that's the budget. So that's often referred to as the power of the purse. And basically what that means is that Congress, is that the president can set spending priorities, proposals, agendas, but ultimately, it's Congress who decides how much money is allocated to which programs, whether it's defense, whether it's diplomacy in the State Department, whether it is domestic infrastructure, et cetera. Congress decides where that money goes, which sector frequently, which frankly, which state, which area of the country gets that money, which programs get a thumbs up or a thumbs down, um, for instance, certain defense programs may or may not get funding based on congressional priorities. So number one is the budget. Number two, Congress does have formal authority for ratifying treaties and agreements, as well as formally ratifying the president's top diplomats and ambassadors. So this is you know, most notable, someone like the Secretary of State needs congressional approval, most of their top deputies. So all the people actually carrying out the president's foreign policy need to effectively be approved of by Congress. Likewise, for treaties to enter into US law and thus be binding under American law, they need to be approved by Congress. Some of the most famous examples of this falling apart would have been Congress's failure to ratify the League of Nations in 1920, which of course was the sort of baby of President Woodrow Wilson and was his priority. The U.S. Congress voted it down. Therefore, the U.S. did not join the League, which ultimately does fail about 20 years later, not just because of America's non-entry, but certainly that, that didn't help matters. So that's number two. And number three would really be laws. I mean, the central role for Congress in American politics is making and writing and passing laws. And so on foreign policy, this has great bearing because you've got things like sanctions. They may write a law about U.S. sanctions toward North Korea or toward Iran, for instance. They may write laws having to do with electronic surveillance, maybe wildlife trafficking, maybe border security and immigration. And so Congress actually does set that official legal agenda, which has quite a bit of bearing on foreign affairs. And those are the main three areas. I would say that the sort of fourth, more nebulous area has to do with how Congress influences the public debate. Obviously, the president will always have primacy of attention in the media and in the public, but there are 535 members of Congress, which means that's hundreds literally of avenues for journalists to get quotes, to get comments, for leaks to happen, and for people, members of Congress to appear on television. And so Congress also has an important role in influencing the public dialogue. And in recent years, we've seen this most notably on things like not only climate change, but the Iran Nuclear deal was a big one, which Republican members of Congress had this sort of full-throated opposition, and they went on every kind of media outlet in every forum possible to make their case. And so that also has a role. Thank you. So that's a really good overview of Congress' almost oversight powers over U.S. foreign policy. Uh, and you've given some really good examples. So I was wondering if we could shift a bit towards climate policy. As you know, one of Biden's first moves when he took office was to ensure that the U.S. rejoined the Paris Agreement. And this sort of signaled 
Biden's international commitment to tackle climate change. And uh, while this was perhaps an expected move, uh, is Congress supportive of the White House agenda? You know, I think it depends on which congressional caucus you're referring to, because certainly the Democrats currently are fully behind Biden. Although I would say that Biden has faced pressure on the progressive side of his party. So he's generally considered to be a relatively centrist figure within the Democratic Party. However, there are certainly far more progressive figures who want more dramatic action to be taken on climate change. So far, however, he has full support of Democratic Congress. The problem, of course, is, the, is that, that Democrats barely have a majority. And so he also faces basically unified opposition from the other side. So right now, Congress, if you include the vice president's tie-breaking vote, the Democrats have a single one-vote majority in Congress, I mean, I'm sorry, in the uh, Senate, and less than 10 seats in the lower house of representatives. And that means that for a lot of legislation, if you have any Democratic defections, you may not pass your agenda at all. And of course, Republican members of Congress can slow and block certain other things through their strong presence, particularly on like committees and that, that kind of thing. But yeah, the Republicans currently are uniformly against Biden politically. There are some agenda items in his climate package that they will get on board with, I think, in time. But the underlying rationale that Biden has made, I think Republicans are very skeptical of. Definitely. So you mentioned one of the or the fourth role of Congress would be to shape the public debate. And so this reminds me that uh, Congress is not the only domestic source of foreign policy and another important component is indeed public opinion. Over the course of the 1960s, a series of individual events such as the Santa Barbara spill saw the American public become increasingly concerned with the environment and water and air pollution specifically. When would you say that uh, environmental concerns became effectively politicized and taken into consideration by the policymaking elite? You're right to put your finger on the 1960s as the sort of pivotal decade for so many things. The environment as a political issue, it sort of starts grassroots, particularly post-World War II, when you have the post-war economic boom in America leads to a lot of economic activity, a lot of industrial and manufacturing activity, which starts to increase pollution levels quite dramatically. Simultaneously, you have a middle class that's growing, getting wealthier. They're able to take their weekends out in the parks and travel around and go hiking or fishing, whatever. And they start to notice there's a problem in some places with the environment. And this starts to sort of coalesce in the 1960s. There's a few events that happen. Uh, 1962, a very sort of pivotal book is published by a writer named Rachel Carson. It's called The Silent Spring, which documents and makes this very persuasive case for how industrial pesticides are ruining America's environment, its waterways, and crucially killing off many bird species, leading to a silent spring that is a spring that is silent of bird songs. And this book, along with activism by places like the Sierra Club and some others, the 1960s, kind of meet up with the other sort of currents of activism going on in the 60s. You have the anti-war movement, you have the counterculture movement, you have the hippie movement. And a lot of an important component of those sort of movements was a back to nature kind of quality. So you did have people trying to spend more time in nature and this sort of accelerates. And so, yeah, you, then you do have a few events in the, in the late sixties. 
not only the Santa Barbara oil spill, but then you also have the use of uh, by the American military of pesticides in Vietnam during the war, things like Agent Orange that are claimed to be weapons of war, but they have a, just a devastating effect not only the people of Vietnam and Cambodia, but also long-term on the uh, environment there. But in the U.S., you have, of course, in this area from 1969 to 1974, you have, as president, uh, a guy named Richard Nixon, who is most famously known for being basically forced out of office in scandal by Watergate. Whatever his other problems were, Nixon was a very savvy politician, and he was very opportunistic. And there's some debate about how deeply he felt for environmental issues, but certainly he saw the political upside in trying to sort of latch on to this agenda because it, among other things, it would help him neutralize his opponents on the left. He was a very conservative Republican. Some of his uh, his Democratic challengers potentially for his next uh, election, 1972, were people with pretty strong environmental credentials. And so Nixon wants to neutralize his opponents. And he's very famous for doing this on things like going to China a few years later. He would sort of dominate the middle ground of politics and take that away from his potential opponents. And he saw this with the environment as being an opening. So he does this. In 1970, in fact, he creates what's known as the uh, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, which is an American agency which has primary responsibility for protecting human and environmental health, basically. And he also signs into law in the early 70s, the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act. And these are things that have tremendous effect even today because of the way that they're written in in terms of emissions standards. Uh, This was a relatively new issue in the early 1970s, but obviously this has become kind of a paramount issue as we talk about climate change. So Nixon had this effect perhaps it was inadvertent of setting in motion these this currents of political and government action on the climate, which have really, I mean, over the years, they become much more partisan, but at the time were quite innovative, even if he perhaps did it for somewhat cynical reasons. I'm so glad that you mentioned uh, President Nixon, because I feel like a lot of recent or more contemporary experts that look back at uh, Nixon's presidency when it comes to climate policy argue or conclude that crafting international agreements was to address climate change was actually a Republican concern. And many of the initiatives, such as the EPA that Nixon brought on, would be considered far left today. So since then, it seems that American environmental policy has become highly partisan, which you were alluding to, and that it is almost possible these days to tell someone's political allegiance based on their stance on, on climate change, at least within the United States. How have Republican slash right-wing attitudes towards climate change evolved over the decades? Well, I think Republicans' stance on climate change has, or on environmental issues, period, have changed dramatically. And if, even if you go back, frankly, 120 plus years, the earliest conservationists in American history or in the U.S. political history were Republicans. People who most famously, Teddy Roosevelt was president in 1901 and 1909 as, as a progressive Republican, but he was responsible for conserving federal land against development. And so he's partly responsible for these massive national parks in the Western U.S., which, which are like, you know, including places like the Grand Canyon and the Grand Tetons. And so there is this root of conservatism that was linked to conservationism. Now, 
over the decades, this does start to change, as you've noted. In the 1970s and the 80s, particularly as it's become clear that conservationism is going to also have, uh, there's going to be an aspect of it that will involve regulation. Because in order to conserve these areas, to conserve clean water, clean air, you're going to have to add regulation to big industries and to private industries to, to reduce pollution. And then that starts to run up against these very bedrock conservative and particularly Republican principles of small government, which is what they want, and low or even no regulation on industry because they broadly believe that the free market will decide what works and what doesn't work. The problem, of course, is the environment, as we've seen again and again, and the climate don't respond well to market forces. And sometimes you do need strong, principled, frankly, government-driven action and regulations to help combat things like pollution. And so as action on climate change has become more urgent in the last half century, you get this split. You get this split because you have progressives who believe in a strong, bigger government that has an empowered, in the U.S. context, an empowered environmental protection agency, and who believe in putting in place tight regulations that, that, that control things like uh, emission standards for cars or industrial pollution or makes big oil companies uh, responsible for the land in which they're drilling on the one side. And on the conservative side, you have the opposite opinion. Well, that's bad because they don't want extra regulations. And so you see this play out in different ways. I mean, most recently, the last U.S. administration under Trump, I mean, he made it his, uh, um, one of his main campaign issues in 2020 was that he had supposedly slashed red tape and regulations during his presidency. And partly what that was about, it was rolling back regulations that Obama had put in place, many of which had to do with helping the environment, helping mitigate climate change, putting on new regulations on car makers and on and other industrial pollutants. And so what you do have with on the Republican side, you really have one of their key issues is small government, anti-regulation, supposedly pro-business. And they see the steps taken to fight climate change as running up against that because it's putting more restrictions on free business, open business. Now, there's some, I mean, I don't know if that's necessarily the case. Car makers have actually been frequently ahead, frankly, of the Republican Party on um, adapting their product to take into account climate change. But nevertheless, that central issue of the, the role of the government in that policy has, uh, I think, been a, it's been a real wedge issue that typically exploded 80s and 90s. And today it's, it's almost an unbridgeable divide. And so when you talk about this changing debate uh, domestically and uh, the sort of incompatible priorities, um, how would you say it has impacted a U.S. foreign policy output? Well, I think one of the challenges the U.S. has in foreign policy, and this is not a novel observation, but it is bitter political polarization at home. And the reason that has a negative impact in this area is that each successive administration is frequently reneging on the agreements that the previous one did, partly for domestic political reasons. So you do have things like, so for instance, in 1997, the U.S. signed on to the Kyoto Protocol. However, Bill Clinton, who was president then, knew he couldn't get it through Congress. So the U.S. never ratified it into law. It remained uh, 
technically signed on to the UN ag agreement, but because it wasn't ratified in law, because Clinton knew he couldn't actually pass that in Congress, which at that time was controlled by Republicans, it fell to, to his successor. Now, his successor, George W. Bush, was a Republican from Texas, and Texas is the Central American oil state. And in fact, Bush had worked in oil before as well. So what they ended up doing is basically they would draw the U.S. from the Kyoto Agreement, which they can do because it was not passed by Congress. Therefore, it was not in American law. And so the rest of the world then had to adapt to the U.S. potentially fatally weakening the Kyoto Protocol. And this was at that time the most promising, although it hasn't worked out that way, but at the time it was the most promising global climate agreement. Skip ahead to George W. Bush's uh, successor, Barack Obama, a Democrat, makes really ambitious goals and signs the U.S. on to the Paris Climate Treaty six or seven years ago, which, which is even more ambitious than Kyoto. But again, Obama can't get it through a Republican Congress. So it is never ratified into U.S. law. So the U.S. is sort of signed on to it, but it has a very limited binding nature in that agreement. Obama's successor is Donald Trump, who is opposed to basically everything Obama stands for. And now he campaigns partially on withdrawing America from the Paris Climate Accord, which he finally does toward the end of his term, which undermines America's role when it comes to combating climate change. And then, of course, Donald Trump's successor is a Democrat. So you're going back to the left again. And Joe Biden has been setting even more ambitious targets than Obama did and has obviously rejoined Paris and has announced pretty dramatic goals, actually, for American carbon reduction between now and 2030. And then again, uh, he is, uh, I think his goal currently is to have net zero carbon emissions in the U.S. economy by 2050, which is actually more ambitious than most other big economies. The problem is for other countries in knowing how much to trust America's word in these international agreements. And this is a problem that goes beyond just the climate. It goes on to things like the Iran nuclear deal and other things as well. When a president signs on to something and other countries think they have American buy-in, so that so they join. But then you have, because of American polarization, a new president from a different party takes over and just withdraws from all of these, these international agreements. It makes it very hard for these countries and their leaderships to plot medium and long-term foreign policy and international agreements. And it's really doing really pernicious damage to American credibility in the long run. And I don't think anywhere more dramatically than on climate change because of the nature of the problem, this sort of fact that it's it's only getting worse, it's transnational. And it's a problem that I don't think the US political, political system, frankly, is set up to handle very well. Um, I think that that shows uh, really well the domestic tensions of US foreign policy, especially within the climate uh, debate. Uh, but also how it undermines U.S. credibility abroad. Uh, and it sounds like there's an interplay of quite a bit of uh, factors going on and different actors involved in the making of this climate or environmental policy. So I think this would be all the more relevant in the context of the column that you wrote for the world today, the February-March issue, where you looked at how Biden wants to pursue a foreign policy for the middle class, which is tying uh, in the foreign initiatives to domestic concerns. What would this foreign policy that begins at home look like? What challenges would it face and how can the Biden administration overcome them? When it comes to things like the climate and energy, of course, one of the things that the Biden administration is trying to do is it is trying to affect an economic restructuring, which is pretty profound, actually, 
toward new technologies and green energy. And it's seeing this as having a domestic and foreign component. First off, it has sort of a transnational component, I think, which is, I think there is a legitimate concern about the climate and about the environment. Number two, domestically, of course, what they're seeing is, what they're hoping anyway, is that a big investment in green energy in things like retrofitting homes to make them more uh, environmentally sound, updating the power grids to make it more green, investing in the electric car market, not only to boost production, but to create more power stations around the country, investing in um, things like better roads and hopefully eventually trains that will help with overall lowering emissions. They're hoping that all of those things will have a beneficial impact on the economy as well. So they're hoping that that will help create jobs. So for instance, you're having year on year, you're having decreasing jobs in the coal industry, which in certain parts of the U.S. is a, historically was huge. People who would dig coal, uh, as well as the oil industry. Those jobs are, have been decreasing every year. So those communities need to make the transition at some point to some kind of new industrial base. And I think what they're trying to do, and the challenge here is going to be to make this a relatively even developmental strategy across the country, because it is still a pretty big country, and not have all of the gains, for instance, be located in Silicon Valley in California or uh, in other places like that that are these innovative hubs traditionally, but then you have these left-behind pockets who people can't get work you know, in the oil industry, but also there's no new energy. Uh, uh, they're trying to add incentives for uh, environmentally friendly construction companies. For instance, if you have a fleet of vehicles that has hybrid technology or even uh, is electric and it does like repair work and helps with bridges and that sort of thing, you're getting potential tax breaks on these projects. They're trying to encourage a deeper investment in you know, other sectors, for instance, the development um, of lithium batteries and other kinds of new technologies that will actually you have new plants to create new jobs. So there's a domestic economic imperative here. The third thing does start to go into foreign policy, and it is there's this competition that is not just rising, it is completely, it's very much here between the US and China for who will be the most influential and consequential country for the rest of the century. And I think what the Biden administration is seeing here is that research and development, investing in in, in R&D and new technologies, particularly in eco-friendly technologies, is the wave of the future. And that's actually going to be a way they can gain an edge to create sustainable development projects, potentially abroad, potentially in places like Africa, which which, uh, where China has had a strong presence in Uh, creating infrastructure projects. And I think what the Biden people are are thinking is that if they can create a model of development that's not only effective, but also delivers on sustainability goals, that will be more appealing and will give the U.S. both hard and soft power in places like Africa and Asia potentially to, to compete with China. And, you know, I think it also has things that has a military component because many of these technologies are become dual use you know can you invest in certain kinds of technology that will not only help transition to a green economy but may help fortify things like the electric grid against cyber attack or in you know other kinds of sort of defense priorities 
Well, that sounds very ambitious and challenging at the same time. And I think on this note, we'll, we'll end it here. Thank you so much for joining me, Daniel. Of course. Thanks for having me. That's it for this episode. We hope you enjoyed listening. If you liked what you heard, then please leave us a review and subscribe on whichever podcast app you're using, as this makes it much easier for others to find us. Yes, and if you're interested in any of the publications we mentioned earlier on, the links will be in the show notes. And we hope you're looking forward to a next episode very soon. <laughs>